Hey guys, welcome into the Happy Haven. I'm your host, Gnarly Canary. This week we had Matt Hawkins from Top Cow Comics on again uh, to come in and talk the state of the comics industry. We had some really good, deep conversations about things that really matter, and uh, he announced a Kickstarter. So kick back and enjoy, guys. going pretty good <clears throat> i saw you online i didn't want to just like call though i wanted to make sure you were like yeah go ahead <laughs> before oh, no worries man i just uh, figured uh, if we're on might as well move rock and roll yeah i hear you so um what's been going on since i mean we talked a while ago yeah i don't um, remember when the last time we spoke what we talked about <laughs> but i mean now that most of con season's done, uh, well, you, you guys were at New York Comic Con, right? Yeah, there is really no uh, con season anymore. I mean, it's it's uh, it's year round. I mean, people say that, you know, and I'm like, uh, uh, you know, I do I do at least one convention every month, so there really is no official con season. I think because the bigger cons run from like San Diego to I, I think it used to be Chicago's like in April or May, and then people think that New York sort of ends con season, but there's you know there's there's like 150 shows now, so it's uh, it's it's pretty all all year round. Right. So how to um? Hold on, I've we've got a puppy, and I think she wants to be part of the show because somebody has to walk down the street. So um, I got your Gotha. Um, you know, I mean, I was part of the Kickstarter campaign, so I got the digital copy of the book and. Cool. It was. You had to read that? Yeah, I got to read it. Cool. Um, it was absolutely amazing. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. It was. Uh, been working on the uh, the second volume. Hill's uh, a little busy these days, working on all the stuff he's working on. So, working on that one on solo. Um, and I'm doing. Actually, we're working on a. There's another book that Raphael Ianko and I did called Stairway, that we're yeah. actually launching a uh, Kickstarter for this Thursday, doing the same kind of model as Golgotha. It'll be a uh, original graphic novel that's available. It'll be available in comic shops and and all the regular channels, but uh, it'll be available first and with an exclusive cover to people that want it from Kickstarter. Well, that's what I'll be doing then. Cool, man. <laughs> Most definitely. So, um, you know, overall, how's the, how's the year been for, for Top Cow and, uh, you know, all the different titles coming out, and um, it's been uh, you know I, I think like anything, it's always sort of a it's a mixed bag of, of and failure and learning experiences. Um, you know, one of the things that we've sort of really started to realize this year, especially, is that uh, the trade sales are so much stronger than uh, individual sales anymore. That there have been more things along the lines of Golgotha, Airway, and Sunstone, and, and this upcoming swing that. Um, we're, we're, we're doing stuff that's more straight. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was doing Think Tank, uh, you know, I put Think Tank on hiatus for now, but that was based on the idea that the 32-page book sales were, uh, were, you know, were lower than they were for Volume 4. Um, I sort of took that as a sign, but now the trade sales for Volume 5 are actually very robust. So I have to uh, kind of rethink the, uh, the strategy on some things. It's just... Uh, 
You know, the other thing with Golgotha that we discovered was very interesting is, is I had been told by many people, and I had even thought this would be true, that uh, our sales into the bookstores and into the comic shops would be lower because we did the Kickstarter, because, you know, in theory, our hardest core fans would uh, buy it from the Kickstarter, and therefore they wouldn't be buying it from the shops, so our sales would be lower in the other channels. Um, what we actually discovered is that our sales were higher. And uh, that was quite a shock to me, actually. Uh, it's one of those, those good little pleasant surprises. You know, you're not used to having kind of those kind of shocks. Um, and then right. I, I thought about it, talked to a lot of people about it, and I realized when you run a successful Kickstarter, uh, it's kind of advertising. You know, I mean, it is marketing for something, and especially if it succeeds and it goes and people kind of hear about it. I mean, so much of it these days is... Uh, what have you heard about? What are you looking forward to? You know, it's so, so much word of mouth, and have you even heard of this thing? Because there's so many projects that come out, you know, on a consistent basis. I mean, I'm I'm shocked all the time at the, the sheer volume of comic books and graphic novels that are coming out now. I don't I don't know how fans even keep up. It's hard, and I think that's why you see trade sales are up over issues, like you said. Um, sometimes it's easier to pick a trade and take the time to read that and wait for another title that maybe you're interested in to come out in a volume. Right. I mean, that's the way I do it now. Oh, it makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, um, you know, part of it is uh, I've run into this with comic shops, and I've had conversations with retailers, and I understand their their business and uh, how they're, they're always preferring to sell out than have an extra copy or two. So, I mean, I, I, I get sort of that whole... Model. I think the problem for a publisher and a creator is that when you put out a book, like let's say a store orders five copies, if those sell out in the first ten minutes, you know, then everyone else that comes in that store that day doesn't even know the book came out, you know, right. and uh, and then if they see issue two or three later, they're like, oh, what happened, you know, or or it, it, so it's because uh, I, I get that too, where I'll go to conventions, like I, I was just at New York Comic Con. Uh, two weekends ago, and uh, there were several people that came up to me and wanted to, quote-unquote, catch up on my stuff. And I'm like, what does that mean? And I'm like, and so, some people actually even use that term, oh, I need to catch up on your stuff. And I'm like, okay. So they would buy, and they would buy quite a, quite a few things, you know, like they'd, they'd pick up two or three trades, and then they'd talk to me about stuff, want some old stuff signed. So I think, you know, the problem with doing conventions is, is, is it's very tiring, it's expensive, and uh, from a publisher-creator point of view, I mean, the idea is, is it's sort of marketing, and you want to kind of build up this fan base that will then track down and buy your stuff from the other channels so that you don't always have to do these shows. But I'm actually right. starting to discover that uh, that might not be possible because so many people come and do these shows specifically looking for, you know, creators. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's not easy. I mean, I'm, not, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, and I'm, I'm making a good living, so I'm not complaining. I just it's, it's always interesting how everything always kind of shifts around and the business gets harder and... Uh, you know, in some cases it gets easier, but, uh, you know, there was a lot of concern about digital, which sort of panned out to be nothing, really. I mean, the print sales seem to be unaffected by it. And, uh, you know, now with these crowdfunding things as well, you know, people have told me that if you're going to crowdfund a book, that it won't do well on the other channels. I've now, at least in one instance, shown that that's not correct. So, I don't know. It's, it's one of these weird things that you just try to figure stuff out, you know? Yeah, I mean, I can see, you know, the industry's gotten so available, I guess, in so many different formats. I can see how it would be hard to gauge, like, 
well, let's put these eggs in this basket. Let's put these eggs in. Yeah, I mean, I can see that because there's, you know, there's digital, then there's single issue, then there's trade, then there's what people know about versus what's actually on the shelf, what's getting pushed and promoted and what's not. And it looks like it looks like it's a definitely a different industry than what I remember growing up and reading. Well, I think yeah. Uh, it seems to me the 32-page books still seem to be pretty much dominated by your basic Marvel. And uh, I, I kind of get that because I think there is such a proliferation of these books that it's sometimes difficult on a Marvel and DC front to even keep up with the trades. I mean, because they're constantly releasing essentials, you know, older material. When you have, like, a title like the X-Men where there's probably six or 700 trade paperbacks and graphic novels, uh, how do you know which one to read? You know, I mean, that's sort of uh, we ran into that with Witchblade in the Darkness, where we had these long running series where there was 18 or 19 volumes and we hadn't done it like volume one to 18. We did it in arcs. So there was, you know, there was Witchblade Redemption volume one to four. There was Witchblade Freebird volumes one to three. There was there's various arcs. And I would run into that all the time where fans wouldn't know what to read. And uh, so we would release like checklists. But, you know, it. it it's uh, it's an interesting time. I, I I think digital is nice for that because it's easy. I have noticed that our trade sales on digital are not as strong as the 32-page books. So I think a lot of people that read digital, uh, they are reading it as they come out, um, which right. is sort of interesting. And in the print format, it seems to be shifting more to the trades. So, you know, if you get... And I think there's you just have to kind of do the math on it. I mean, I, I look at certain titles and realize that we're probably losing a little bit of money putting the 32-page books out. But, you know, I mean, the problem with the trade model is if you, then you have the entire creative cost born into one item. And, uh, you know, that could, could be significant. You know, like, uh, part of the reason why I'm able to do it on these books with Kickstarter and the ones that I'm writing is because I don't pay myself in advance on these titles. So uh, it, it makes the creative cost cheaper. So I can work just with the artist. But, right. you know, I mean... Your average creative cost on a 32-page book is probably about five grand. You know, a trade is for issue. Yeah, at least. Wow. I mean, that's uh, and that's that's reasonable mainstream sort of rates. I mean, I have to compete uh, with Marvel and DC for page rates because we're using sort of these higher-end artists. So, you know, so if you figure you have a five-issue series that's being collected in a trade, there's twenty-five thousand in creative costs. You know. Um, you know, you have to sell a lot of trades to break, you know, to make back that 25000 But if you actually, like, let's say you put out uh, five individual issues, and on four of them you lose $1,000 a piece, you're still paying back. Even though you lost money on the 32-page books, you're recouping some of the creative investment. So that when you put the trade out, you actually have less money to recoup overall. So, right. yeah, it, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating. I mean, it, it really is now kind of a, there's a long tail, and there's a numbers game, because... You know, our backlist, especially for the stuff I personally write, there's a there's a backlist that I'm constantly selling and pushing, you know, because I, I do multiple volumes of different titles. Like the Tithe Volume 3 of the Samaritan Arc just came out in the last month. And, uh, you know, and that you see an uptick in Tithe Volume 1 and 2. And uh, so that's, that's sort of how it works. It's why I'm doing a Volume 3 of Symmetry. You know, it's why we're doing seven volumes of Postal. I did five volumes of Think Tank. Because every time you put out a new volume, it sort of pushes the sales of the previous volumes. Right. Well, last time you were on, um, you turned me in. I mean, I had a co-host then. Um, it's just been me for months now. 
But you turned us on to Symmetry and Think Tank, and boy, I just started devouring those. <laughs> so, definitely what? looking forward to, to some new stuff coming out for that. I think the good thing about, uh, you know, it's once you find a, a creator that you realize you like their material, um, and I see that for non-Marvel and DC. I think people still follow, like, Marvel and DC for characters. And I maybe maybe people are following The Walking Dead for characters, maybe. I don't know. But, you know, I think otherwise, a lot of people follow uh, writers or artists of people they like and, and they trust. Um, and for the most part, people tend to deliver consistency. So if you like one of my books, there's a, a decent chance you'll like another one. It might not always be that case. And that's where I'm experimenting with different projects like this new swing book I'm doing is completely different. So I think, you know, that's sort of a spinoff of, of Sunstone. So I don't know that my think tank readers are going to like swing. I think it's, it's kind of a different audience, you know? Right. But I mean, you know, uh, I have had, you know, I mean, I've, I've had Brian Edward Hill on, um, on the show, and I talk to him on Twitter regularly, but I had um, <clears throat> Ryan Katie on uh, not that long ago, and he's worked on Magdalena and Warframe and everything else, and we just had a big old brag fest <laughs> on Top Cow yeah, on, I, on his episode. Ryan's a, a good, good guy. He's actually coming back to L.A. I'm excited to have him back. Um, we joked that he's he's my Morty, you know, so, you know, for Rick and Nice. Morty. So we always, I always say he's evil Morty, but I'm his Rick. But we have, no, I like, I like Ryan. He's a good guy, and he's doing, you know, Warframe. He and I are doing together. Uh, Magdalena, he did with Teeny Howard. He's doing an original series that he pitched to me that uh, we're going to publish. That Andrea Muti, the guy who's doing Port uh, of Earth, is drawing. So it's a lot, a lot of good stuff. I, I like Ryan quite a bit. He's a good guy. Yeah, I definitely dug that episode. I told him, you know, he's definitely welcome back anytime, and he seemed up for it you know, like you and Brian, and I've kind of, you know, I mean, I, I, I've pulled more towards indie labels, you know, now that I've gotten older and, you know, with limited time to read and where I want to put my resources, so, right. you know, I, I kind of, I've definitely gravitated much to, much more towards, you know, your label and a couple of the other, you know, indie labels. I really like Alterna Comics. Um They've got some cool ideas, the way they do things with the newsprint and their issues only being about a dollar a piece and, you know, all original stories without any real legacy characters. So, oh, I'm know, not even heard of them. They're called Alterna? Alterna Comics, yeah. I'll check them out. Run by a guy named Peter Samedi out of New England. Gotcha. I'll check it out. Yeah, it, yeah it's just a different, you know, it's just a different concept for a comic book business model and you know I'm, I'm kind of gravitating much more towards that these days I think over the past couple of years yeah I don't know so. that uh, it's got to be difficult to make money on a, on a one dollar uh, price point but uh, I'm curious I'll check it out Alterna you said Alterna A-L-T-E-R-N-A Alterna Comics yeah at a dollar it's uh, see the nice thing about that and that's where I think they're playing into something I've noticed is kind of a new phenomenon there definitely is a, uh, a resistance to trying new stuff that's expensive. You know what I mean? I mean, if you have to pay to get into something and you're not sure whether you're going to like it, people resist that $4 price point, you know what I mean, for, for, for a comic. Um, and so there's not a lot of sampling. But if you do something at like a dollar, it's one of the reasons why I'm a firm believer in um, you know sampling, giving away free content to try to get people to try stuff. I always give away free comics at my booths, and uh, yeah. it works. 
you know, people come back the next day or the day after and they buy stuff. See, that's awesome. So do you guys have any, um, you guys got any holiday plans for, for the label or is it just, you know, because, and I, and I know things have to be planned out way far in advance. No, not, but. not really. I mean, we do, we'll, we'll do like some online Christmas cards and, you know, so in the immediate, we're doing the uh, Kickstarter for Stairway that launches this Thursday. Uh, there aren't any Christmas books. We've done a few of those in the past. They, they honestly never seem to do very well. And I, I uh, like we did a Darkling Christmas special a few years ago, which was kind of fun. I think that's the best one we did. And we've done a few Jingle Bell things for Paul Dini. Um, oh, Paul Dini. I, I think our line is not really big enough to do sort of, uh, you know, like Christmas specials and stuff like that. I don't, I don't know if they'd be supported. I mean, we're more, more focused on just uh, doing the content that we're doing. I gotcha. Hold on one second. No so how, how, I mean, how was New York Comic Con? Uh, it was a big show. I mean, I, I they moved the artist alley into a smaller area, which was uh, was notable for the crowded conditions. I mean, the tables were a little smaller. Everyone was a little closer together. Um, but I like the artist alleys. It's one of the reasons why you'll see me and, and a collection of other Top Cow people setting up in similar areas. Like I set up with the Sedgicks and with uh, Isaac Goodhart and Ron Katie and, and Zach Kaplan. We all had artist alley tables. And I didn't have a uh, Top Cow booth upstairs. And part of that is just uh, marketing and economics. And, uh, you know, unless you have, like, a mainstream film or TV series or a video game or something that's worth promoting to the uh, to the larger audience, I don't know that having a booth on the main floor for some of these things is worth doing. You know, I mean, we do it at San Diego mainly because we've been grandfathered in. We're right next to Image. And uh, if, you, if you stop setting up at, at San Diego, you just lose the space. So we... We continue to set up a San Diego Comic-Con, but New York Comic-Con, I set up a series of artist alley tables, and, uh, you know, so we do that, um, and I found that, you know, it's, it's cheaper to set up, and uh, we end up, you know, selling more books, because the people that come through Artist Alley are actually comic fans, you know, versus people that are wandering through the main aisles of a comic convention. Uh, I, don't, I, I would guess that less than 5 to 10% of them buy actually buy comics, you know? I mean, so many of them are there for... You know, the panels for, for actors and actresses for celebrities right. and so it's 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 uh, it's become a different animal. I, I, I like the smaller conventions. We tend to perform better there. Um, I've been to a few cons where, which is weird for me because I know I've been in this business for a long time, but I've never considered myself a big name in the industry. And there've been but there've been a few smaller shows where I've been the biggest name guy there, which is kind of weird for me because uh, they don't have any actual working comic book professionals. It's all what I call print jockeys and uh, these people, well, regional heroes. So <laughs> right. our print jockeys are everywhere. Um, you know, the regional heroes are, uh, those are the guys that uh, they're like a local that does comics and they print them at Kinko's or whatever and they sell them at cons and stuff, but they don't get a lot of nationwide distribution. Um, right. But uh, no, I, you know, it's all about, you know, comics has really become a hustle game. It's always been a hustle game, but it's more a hustle game now than ever. Because there's so much competition. I mean, you know, if you go on any given Wednesday, uh, there's 150 to 200 comics that are coming out. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's so many, you know. And uh, I remember back when I would just go to comic shops in the early 90s when I was just starting out, 
you know, you'd have weeks where there'd only be 15 or 20 comics coming out total, you know? So when you have 10 times that volume, you know, and they're selling fewer units. I mean, I, 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 there are a lot of retailers I know that I've known for a really long time and it was a lot easier for them when they were ordering a hundred copies of, of, you know, 20 different titles a week versus five copies of a hundred different titles, you know, cause you got to track them and they're harder to sell. And, uh, it's just, yeah, I, I, I feel for the comic retailers these days. I think it's a harder, harder it's ever been. I, I agree with that only because I was collecting hardcore about the same time period you were talking about. You know, I was um, close to finishing high school, so I was working and I had my own money, so I could buy whatever I wanted. And I can remember going in, and yeah, it was really easy to pin down what you wanted to read. And I kind of got tried to get back into collecting in the past couple of years. And I remember walking in and looking at the new release wall and just being like, Jesus Christ, like, what what the hell am I wanting to buy, you know? And you're like, well, I'd like to get back into this. And then they're like, well, which one? Because there's like seven. Right. Well, it's not that I mean the the better selling titles are coming out with, you know, five to seven covers. And it's it's interesting now. When when it was just Indies doing variants, it it was less notable. But now you have almost every Marvel and DC title has multiple covers. Yeah, that's that that really stuck out to me. I remember, you know, I mean, X Men was really big on it. You know, you'd get the 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 cardstock cover with some sort of hologram on it in the '90s, and you know, that was that was like the special cover. But it was like one or two books would have it, and it wasn't every month, and it wasn't. And now you look and you go to look through the number ones, and there's like six number ones. Well, that's not including uh, retail exclusive there. Right, and then, yeah, well, I remember, you know, I tried to get into this new Dark Knight Returns that, um, or, what is it, DK3, Right. and they already had, like, the expensive behind-the-wall framed ones to buy, and I'm, like, looking, and the closest thing to it is, like, 20 years younger for the same price, like an actual collector's item, and this is a just came out this month with more of the story coming, so it's not even the whole thing in a collection. And it was like $35. And I'm like, but... And I'm looking, and I'm like, it's 8 bucks for this one, and you're charging like almost four times that amount for for a single issue of the exact same story that literally came out the same day as, as this issue. Right. So, yeah, that one, I mean, I kind of got... I mean, I don't want to say it because I love comics, but I kind of got turned off this year. Oh, yeah? Um, try, yeah, like, honestly, I guess as a customer, um, it, it was, A, a little overwhelming, and B, it seemed a little more money-grabby for the big houses that, you know, like, you know, the two big houses. It's kind of, it's off-putting, I guess, when you grew up being able to follow storylines and just buy the issues and enjoy them and read them and you know, now they're so quagmired in politics. Like, you know, you go on Twitter and creators are crapping down the mouths of fans and fans are, you know, throwing crap back at creators. And it's all about, you know, left-wing, right-wing politics. And almost nobody's talking about the actual comics. Now, there are some who don't get mired down in it. And, and I love that. But, you know, there are some big names. And all they do is basically just, like, shit on each other. Yeah, <laughs> and you're like, Jesus Christ! Like, just write the book and let us enjoy the book. Like, you're sitting there, you know, I don't know. It's 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 weird. 
having taken a break for this long and then getting back into it the past year and a half or not, it's definitely a new um, world. Yeah, it is. To, I mean, to, you know, yeah. I tell up and coming, and I, I tell aspiring creators they need to stay out of this shit because it doesn't help them. And you know, you know, when you're an independent creator and you're selling your books and you're out hustling, you can't afford to alienate anyone really because there aren't that many people that are buying and reading these books. So if you're going to alienate half your audience, I mean, the problem is you have people like in California that are in Los Angeles. They don't know any conservative people. You know, a lot of people that are in New York and are working in comic book circles, their their entire peer group is this group of people, um, and they all kind of are like-minded. So they don't know how to react to people who don't think the way they do. It's like when people were so shocked that Trump won, I, I was a little shocked too. But I, I, I knew it was going to be a possibility because I do do all these conventions, and I do do a lot of conventions in the red states. And I, was, I did three conventions uh, last year in Texas. And I was shocked at the sheer volume of Trump hats and shirts and, and signs in people's yards. And, uh, you know, people will post a Trump sign here in Los Angeles. They're liable to get their ass kicked. You know, I mean, I mean, that's not right either, but it's true. Right. But, yeah. Well, well, I mean, that's like, I mean, I live in Atlanta, and there's some spots in Georgia where if you put a Hillary Clinton sign up, there's a good chance they're going to burn that sign and your house down. You know, it's the same thing. It, I mean... You know, I mean, not all of Georgia's like that, but there are parts where, you know, you know what to talk about and what not to talk about. And I see it just the fact that it has spilled over so much into entertainment, which is supposed to be an escape from all the real world bullcrap. It's just it's just kind of disheartening, I guess, for me. And I get political on my Twitter, but I'm not. You know, I, I I take pot shots at both sides because both sides are ridiculous in their own respective ways. Yeah, and I, I'm with you um, on that. Here's what I tell people all the time. <laughs> Especially if you're a writer. You know, if you already have an, a somewhat of an existing audience, you might be able to pick a side. You know, Chuck Dixon, I think, is actually getting more work right now than he's had in a while because he sort of picked the right. You know, and he sort of emboldened himself with the fact that the liberal agenda in comics is sort of preventing him from work. So he's getting work from outside sources, and uh, he's had more work, I think, in the last year. I've seen more Chuck Dixon stuff than I've seen in a really long, long time, and he's sort of uh-huh. in the news again. And you have a guy like that, and you have a guy like Mark Wade, and, and you have these various people, and they can pick a side, and they can make their stand, and they can comment. Um, and the side that is on their side might embolden them. The problem is if you're a new creator, that I don't think that works. I don't think it works, and I think it just alienates people, and you're going to get you're going to get shot out of the gate before you even start. And, you know, like uh, I, I'm I'm more of a libertarian than anything, which puts me uh, hated by everyone. So it, it's uh, you know, me too. The libertarian party's kind of a joke, so you, you know it's weird to say that. But I've always been more socially liberal, especially in the last decade, and, and a little more conservative financially, fiscally, and uh, so it, it kind of is what it is. But and people tend to think, I, I, you know, because I am, I do tend to talk less politics. It's interesting that people on both sides seem to think I'm on their side, which is right. which is really weird for me because I get uh, different people talking to me about different stuff, but I don't, you know, I don't endorse that shit. I, I, I've, I've systematically over the last decade uh, eliminated certain things I talk about on uh, my social media feeds. You know, the first one I abandoned was seven or eight years ago. Because I, I, I used to do a little bit of uh, fat shaming, you know, because I've been a fitness freak my whole life. And uh, then I realized, you know what, I, I, it's wrong to do that in the first place. You should try to help people, not shame them. 
And so I sort of, right. six, seven, eight years ago, whatever that was, I, I kind of made a public pronouncement because I, I was talking about healthcare and, and various things and that people need to be healthy and no, 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 no. But that, again, I, although I'm probably correct in that being healthy is a good thing, you know, it, it doesn't, you are. It doesn't help sell books. You know what I mean? I mean, it, it really does not. And again, I'm sort of right. isolated in, in, like I said, I live in Los Angeles. You know, I, I associate mainly with people that are into fitness. So I'm around people that uh, kind of live this sort of a healthy lifestyle, you know. And if you know, you go to conventions like when I went to Oklahoma City, I, I was uh, I was a little shocked at just how big everyone was. And this was uh, I think this is where sort of some of that controversy came from seven or eight years ago. Um, and uh, you know, you go certain parts of the country, and people are just larger, you know. And it's just it, they are because it's the norm. You know, I, I'm I'm six. I'm a little over six foot. I weigh 185 pounds, and I, I work out pretty much every day. I'm almost 50, so you know the whole idea of people complaining about you know, they. they uh, but you know, I go to places sometimes, and people tell me I look unhealthily skinny, which is kind of funny to me. You know, I mean, it, it really is. <laughs> right. No, yeah, I, I totally get that. Um, you know, I grew up in New England, and you know, moved to the South, and. Good God, are the diets different? Like, they eat stuff here, and, you know, I mean, like, just their normal, this is what I grew up eating, and you're like, holy crap, on some of it. Well, and like, when I was a kid, my, uh, you know, my parents, my mom would give me, you know, this is before we knew how bad sugar was in volume. I mean, I, I remember I used to have Pop-Tarts every day for breakfast. And I, mm -hmm. I would take a Pepsi and drink it on the way to school, you know. I mean, we would have two-liter bottles of Pepsi in the fridge that my mom and I and my sisters, we would drink, you know, pretty much all the time. And it was it was never even thought about. So, I mean, when you grow up in that sort of scenario and you don't realize how bad some of these things are for your body, you know, and there's decades of sort of damage that you do, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a retraining thing, you know. I mean, it really is interesting how, yeah, you know, I... I I gotta tell you, man. I, I'm I'm 48, so I'm two years from being 50, and so I've seen a lot in my lifetime, and uh, it is it is fascinating to me to see people making the same kind of silly, stupid errors. Um, and I, I just, I, you know, everyone always told me that you'll get more conservative as you get older and you'll get less tolerant, and I, I've I've gone exactly the opposite way, and I've become much more liberal and become much more tolerant. Um, and I don't know why that is, actually. I don't either. I've seen to have gone the other way. I, as a teenager, I mean, I skateboarded and listened to hardcore and hip-hop and had a mohawk and had piercings and had a middle finger up at any sort of establishment and was all just like, rebellion and ah. And now at 36, um, that streak will always be there. The rebelliousness streak will always be there. But I don't know, like, my outlook on things has changed. I definitely think that individuals get to make their own choices for their own lives, hence the word individual. Right. But I think it's the the fact that it also has to become other people's responsibility for them to be an individual. That's the part where they lose me, or the part where you have to agree, you have to agree with my choice to be this individual, or you're a monster, like, that kind of stuff, like, a lot of the SJW stuff turns me off, not because I don't agree, 
with them just wanting to be themselves. It's the authoritative tone that seems to come with it. And that's not just left-wing SJWs. There's plenty of, you know, right-wing guys running around at the same time. So I'm actually, I think, not so much becoming more conservative, um, although I am a constitutional conservative, which means I don't subscribe to a political party because there's no political party in this country worth the shit right now. Yeah. But, like, I just, I don't like how tribal everything's getting, how it needs to be this or that. And if it's not this, then I have the right to be violent against you. And both sides are doing that. So when people scream about Antifa and all that, and yeah, they're horrible and what they're doing is horrible, but there's just as many alt-right people showing up with their little cosplay shields and bludgeons and batons as the left. And I just, it's starting to make me actually curmudgeon up instead of like open up to people. It's starting to make me like, I think I'm going to go be an old man hermit on a mountain for a little while until y'all get this like toned down and people can actually hold conversations with one another again. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of turning into the get the hell off my lawn yeah. kind of guy. <laughs> No, I, I get that. And, you know, part of, part of what I do now is I kind of tell people, you know, if you want to be people, do it, do it subjectively and do it in your writing. I mean, you can have much more impact on what people think by writing a story that is subversive um, and making mm-hmm. and then, then you can ever by uh, just saying, you know, saying something, you know. Because uh, once people start reading something, they may not even realize what's happening. And so I... I I've told a lot of writers, I said, you know what, you should just be more uh, subversive in your writing. Pick content and write it and, and do that kind of thing. I think that's the far better way to go. Most definitely. Plus, you know, re- reading is already a cerebral act. So, I mean, you've already got them open-minded and yeah. and already ingesting information. So that would be a much better format than, totally agreed. you know, just trying to talk at somebody. I agree 100%. Yeah. So on to lighter, <laughs> on to a lighter topic, though. Thank you for going down that rabbit hole with me, though. I mean, if you listen back to Mar- you know, most episodes of the show, I don't really dip a toe into politics, but I know from our last conversation, you're definitely um, the kind of person to talk with it about. So, you know, it's well, rad. There's a rationality, and I, I feel like you have a, a similar rationality that you're, you're trying to think about it. And I think the biggest thing I always try to convey to people is I just don't ever assume that I'm right. You know what I mean? I, I think right. this double down sort of natural assumption from everyone that they're right. And I, I, I don't get that. I mean, I, 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 I'm more of a, a seeker, you know what I mean, for information and knowledge. And, and for me, that uh, makes more sense. I just, so when people double down on this stuff, it kind of drives me nuts. But uh, anyway, I, I didn't mean to go back into that topic. But uh, No, man, definitely, because I'm, I'm one of those people where I will reverse a position if it can be empirically proven that what I was thinking was just an opinion. Right. You know, And it may be something I felt strongly about, so it seemed like truth or fact. But once something can be held up that actually disputes that in a way that can't be argued, I will be like, I concede that point then, and I'll have to rethink my position and see if it's something I want to just continue to believe because it's comfortable or something that I really need to reflect on and maybe change. Well, the thing is, I think, I think the thing you got to realize is that the sad part of that is, is when you realize that that stance, which seems very rational, is actually very rare. 
And part of the reason I don't argue with people online for the most part anymore, I've kind of made it a policy. I have several online policies. I, I have a couple, like, if, if I'm online on social media, if I get to the second or third time, sometimes I'll go a third time, but usually if I get to the second time in the day where I want to tell someone to fuck off, I will stop looking at social media for the day. And uh, sometimes it'll be the third, but usually, you know, because it, it, it's almost invariably by just scrolling through my feeds in, in, in a day that I'm going to find at least one person that I want to tell to go fuck off. And uh, so, but when I get to that second or third one, I'm like, ah, eh, enough of this negativity for the day. I got other shit I can do with my life, you know. But the other, I'm getting to that point, yeah. Well, no, it, it, it actually makes sense because really, you know, because this is, this is the other, the corollary of that is I no longer really argue with people because there is seriously no point to it, you know. I mean, you're not going to change anyone's right. opinion anymore. Uh, the fact that you're willing to listen and possibly change your opinion puts you in an extreme minority that I, I'm proud to be a part of. And, uh, you know, I mean, most people, I, the few times, this, yeah, I used to do this. I used to, because I fancy myself a debater and a smart guy, so I'll go in and talk to people when I know that I feel like there are fallacies in their argument. But here, here's what happens most of those times. I'll argue with someone, they will then uh, block me. You know, when you get them to the point where you can uh, sort of empirically, like you said, prove that they're incorrect, uh, rather than, uh, you know, sort of uh, doing what you and I would do, which is like think about it, maybe rethink our position, they will uh, block you or cease talking to you, you know, because they don't want that challenge. They want, they've sort of uh, engendered and built this worldview, and anything that challenges that worldview is is wrong and should be blocked. Right. Echo chambers are comfortable places to live in, apparently. Yeah, that's why I'm not a big fan of the safe spaces and all this sort of stuff. I mean, I, I you know, I have two teenage sons, and, and I, I see this, and, uh, you know, I've talked to them about this. I, I think being uncomfortable is not necessarily a bad thing. And uh, I, I get it. I think there are certain instances and situations where, like, a quote-unquote safe space might make sense. But I think, as a general rule of thumb, I think, uh, you know, people learn. And I, I, you know, there seems to be this massive uh, everyone, you know, anti-shaming thing now. And for me, I got to tell you, I think shame is a very powerful motivator. I I think it can be misapplied. And I think that, uh, in many cases, it is misapplied and politicized. But there are shameful behaviors, you know. And it used to be shameful to be fat. You know, I mean, when I was a kid in the 70s and the 80s, if you were fat, people made fun of you, you know? Yep. We're from the same generation, dude. It, yeah. So, you know, can you imagine people making fun of people for being fat today? You know, I mean, I, I I get it, and I say, and I'm not saying it's correct to shame people for being fat, but guess what? There were a lot fewer fat people back then. Right, and here here's the other problem with that. Like, if you want to even take it more into a practical light, is that anti-fat shaming has been placated to the point where literal medical professionals saying, you being this heavy is going to come with all of these health complications. That's now considered fat shaming. Like, it's gone to the point, like with many other social behaviors, where it's so insulated and so protected that any logical and fact-proven, you know, bad consequences of certain behaviors get completely melted away and you're not allowed to say them anymore. Right. You know, I, I just say that because it's mostly with stuff like that, you know, with, with what they call fat shaming now is, 
you know, you'll see people put up pictures of themselves and they're extremely overweight and it doesn't make them ugly or disgusting. But what it does do is they're insulated to the point where if a doctor online were to be like, there's a good chance you could develop this, 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 and this if you don't do something, that's now also considered as bad as being like, wow, look at that fat cow. You know, that's something you don't say to another human being because it's, it's disgusting and it's rude. But what's happened is because everything is so placated now because of this safe space mentality that I've seen literal doctors get completely eviscerated by a social media community for pointing out obvious facts that are detrimental to those people's physical health and their length of being able to be on this planet. You know, that part's kind of scary to me that we've gotten to the point where truth is no longer allowed in circles when it needs to be spoken for the betterment of those people. Yeah. Well, you know, here's, here's an interesting thing, because um, I used to think, and there was an argument that I heard made pretty regularly about how uh, overweight people weigh down the healthcare system and are part of the reason why healthcare is so expensive and stuff like that. And I actually did some research and spoke to some doctors. There's this guy I know who works in insurance, and he said, actually, that's really not true, because uh, overweight people tend to die in their late 50s. And uh, the ones that live that long, and uh, the people that are dragging down the healthcare system are these people that are living into their 90s, who are oftentimes uh, healthier when they're younger, because they develop these sort of systemic, long-term, uh, you know, debilitating things that require a lot of uh, medication and help over longer periods of time. And so right. when I discovered that, I was actually kind of fascinated by it, because it sort of showed that, yes, indeed, Overweight people tend to uh, be a larger percentage of healthcare costs in their 30s and 40s compared to other people in that same age group. But the vast expense in healthcare comes in this uh, over 75 group now. Sometimes they were living 20, 30 years, and these people, most of them, are not overweight at all. You know, they might have other issues. Right. But uh, when I sort of discovered that, I was kind of fascinated by that because there was this misconception that you know these overweight people were dragging down healthcare in their older years and. The thing is, is you know what you don't ever see? You don't see heavy 80-year-old people, you know? I mean, I see 80-year-old no, uh, people smoking and drinking. I do. I've seen it. I see it all the time. You just got to go to fucking uh, Vegas and walk around, and you can, <laughs> right. you can see 80-year-old people smoking and drinking. But you do not see morbidly obese 80-year-old people because they don't live that long. So it, it's, right. just, it's interesting, but uh, I, I look, you know, my thing with people that are overweight is I want to help them, you know, and I, I've offered to help train or, or, or make training uh, regimens for people. It really is. I, I think there are a lot of people, and, and this is where I find it kind of sad because I'm, I'm a pretty vain person and I live a, a more youthful lifestyle, but I never gave up on my appearance. And uh, I see people all the time that are, and it, ha it tends to happen I've noticed between about the age of 28 and 35 where you'll see that people give up on their appearance. And it's, it's either because they're starting to go bald, maybe they're putting on an extra 10 pounds, 20 pounds, and they just kind of lose it at that point, or for, for whatever reasons. And the people that do that, I, I see this, they don't seem to ever come back from it, you know, and they just sort of continue to decline, and you get into that don't give a fuck sort of mentality. And that's just, 
right. it makes me sad, really, because I, you know, I try to encourage people, you know, get out, go for a walk, you know, and I think people don't know what to do. I mean, the other, the other part of this is, is educating people, really, because, you know, what if you are 350 pounds and you're a 40 year old guy and you live by yourself and you work every day, I mean, what is it you need to do? You know, I mean, these people may not know. And a lot of times there's a lot of misinformation online. And I always when I talk to people, I'm like, you know what? What you should do is start walking. You know what I mean? If, if you're that, you, mm-hmm. the, the last thing you want to do is start running. Because if you start running, because see, this is what I, you know, gyms, you know, are always full in January. The gym attendance in January is always very full because people come in with their New Year's resolution to hit the gym and lose weight. And you see this, I see this in gyms all the time where people will come in, I'll see them do these workouts, and I'm like, that guy's going to be so sore tomorrow that he's done. And, uh, and it happens. You know, people go, they work out for a few days, they, they just get so sore, they can't even get out of bed. And um, that's why, you know, you, you really... It, and also the results aren't immediate, so they're, they're putting themselves through all this and looking like it's not doing anything. Yeah, it takes months. You know, for, for some people. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does months. And, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, like when I stop exercising, I lose weight for a while because I'm losing muscle mass. And, uh, you know, because I do a lot of lifting. And so when I, when I, when I take two, three weeks off working out because I'm traveling or whatever, I'll lose five to ten pounds even though I'm eating like shit on vacation or something like that. And, uh, but it's just, it really is about creating routines for yourself and, and, and things like, you know, for me, I, I, I tend to not care about what I eat on the weekends. You know, on the weekends, I'll kind of eat what I want. I'll drink some alcohol, have some fun, and I'm not doing a lot of exercising on the weekends. But Monday to Friday, I have sort of a strict regimen of what I eat. I exercise daily, and it, it, it's created this nice balance for myself in life that, I, you know, I'm not eating broccoli every meal. I'm fine eating a pint of ice cream on a Sunday. You know, but there's sort of this balance of, uh, of give and take. But uh, anyway, aren't we supposed to be talking about comics, man? <laughs> <laughs> no, man. I mean, that's why I do the show the way I do. I, I like to just talk to people. It just happens to be people who make stuff that I love. So, oh, it's, no, it's, you, I'm just I giving mean, you shit. I, I never formalize the structure or anything. I never have. That's, it's, that's more fun I, that way. I just, cause a lot of times I get on and talk about comics. I realize I'm always talking about the same thing. And uh, I... I, I yeah, I just you know, and it's it's really strange. I, I I really have gotten into this mode where I just feel bad for people because I see them making these mistakes in their lives and their routines and their choices, and I want to help people, but they have to want to be helped. I, I've tried to help people that didn't want help, and it always uh, that always badly. Yeah. It backfires usually. Yeah, but no, like I mean, I had um. And for some reason, my computer decided it wanted to update itself in the middle of the episode, so it cut the recording, and I didn't even know it. Um, I had Phil Labonte on. He's the lead singer of All That Remains um, last week, and I need to get him back on because I have no audio because my computer just decided it wanted to be an asshole. Uh, and um, we're fine. I can see the counter on this one. We're, <laughs> we're good. But um, it did like an auto update for Windows, and it shut everything off, and I didn't realize it. But I had him on, and we didn't even talk about music until the last five minutes. Like, I mean, you know, here's this national tour having, you know, million plus, you know, some of their videos on YouTube have like multiple million views, and, you know, people love their music, and him and I talked about um, the, the gun control debate fallout from Las Vegas, and... 
which turned into a conversation mostly about postmodernism, jingoism, and Marxism, and how damaging it is. And, that, and you know, and like the last ten minutes, we were like, "Oh yeah, music." So, <laughs> so don't even worry about the fact that we we got off the comic track, dude. <laughs> well, I think you know, like I, I, I had, I write a lot of stuff, and I, uh, you know, if you look at the stuff I'm writing, like the Tide, which tackles religion and sort of hypocrisy and religion and the prosperity doctrine, yep. you know, and think tank, I, I, I sort of skewer the military industrial complex, the political complex, and sort of the hypocrisy and irony so so vetted in, in that you know and you look at different sort of things that I, I write I tend to write stuff that uh, I want to learn about I mean that's that's always been sort of my mo you know everyone always says write what you know I always try to write what I want to know because then two things happens when you do that one you write it from a fresh perspective and you actually write it relatable to people that don't know it as well uh, one thing I've noticed when you have like real scientists and doctors and people who actually take a stab at fiction, a lot of times what they write is inaccessible to the layman because they can't, they write it in a way that's not, uh, relatable or understandable to someone who doesn't know the lingo. Um, and, right. you know, and then if I'm writing something I want to learn about, it makes the uh, process fun for me, you know, cause I'm actually learning something that I want to learn about. And, uh, so I always tell, that's one of the things I always recommend to writers is, uh, Pick something you want to learn about, immerse yourself in the research, and write about that. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I've, you know, I, I write, and, you know, for myself, um, <laughs> and uh, my 11-year-old, um, you know, I've read to her since she was little. I did the same thing with my oldest, who's going to be 20 this year, and um, I started reading to them when they were younger, and now she actually... We did a one-page synopsis for she actually wants to write a book with me um, about a superhero character that she made up. And we're going to do that, and that'll just be mine and hers thing. Um, but, you know, like I see her, she thought it would just be, all right, I'll sit down with Daddy and we'll write it. And I started being like, well, where, where do you want this to go? Where do you... And now she's actually going back and looking at some of the better origin stories for for superheroes, because she's 11, so she's not ready for, you know, a heady socio-political topic for, you know, a comic book or a short story she wants to read. She went to the superheroes, because that's, you know, big in our house and everything. And But now she's doing her own research on how to come up with a hero of her own, understand how the superhero story works, but also understand it enough to where she's not ripping off other ideas, because she's even said, I don't want it to be like everybody else's. Right. So, like, I'm having to teach her what writing is really like, that it's not like a school project, that this is something that really needs to come from you, and it's something that you need to know about ahead of time. It's really hard to write when you're, you know, for for me, as an adult, it's easier, but I think for her at 11, it'll be harder for her to try to keep writing a story as she's coming up with it. You know, actually have a synopsis, actually have a you know, a little bit of an establishment that you can write from. Yeah, I'm a big Instead of just I'm a big, jumping in whole hog. Yeah, synopsises and uh, advanced planning. I mean, I, I, these kids today aren't going to use yellow notepads like I do. But, you know, most of my stories, I break down on notepads before I ever type anything up. So I'll take a, exactly. take a notepad, go walk to the park, sit down, and just think about it for a while. And, uh, you know, but uh, I, I got to tell you, the biggest mistake I see people doing writing 
is 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 sort of the unrelatable thing or or the too much plot thing. You know, I mean, there's plenty of uh, plot. Plot is of course a good thing, and I, I think we always look at movies and TV shows where the plots don't make sense. But uh, you know, more important sometimes than plot is, is the character and whether or not we give a shit about that character. Because I, I look at you know, I look at the. Uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, and I challenge people all the time to tell me what that's even about. You know, I mean, I, I've gotten in multiple conversations where people don't really even know what those stories are about, but they know the characters and they know some of the character bits and the scenes. And uh, so, uh, I mean, <laughs> I use this as an example. If you're going to write an alien invasion story, you know, you need to focus on a couple characters and, and relate their travel and, and their uh, drama and their conflict within the greater storyline. I think that's, that's the biggest thing I see a lot in comics especially, is people have these high-concept ideas, and they start developing them out and fleshing them out, and they're so concerned about the laws of the world, the world-building, and all these sort of things, that the characters internally get kind of lost. And uh, the problem with that is it's boring. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't matter... How right. cool ultimately the high concept is. If we don't have a relatable character that we're following and invested in that we care about, uh, people lose interest very quickly. You know, so it's uh, it's hard. I mean, writing is writing's hard. It's why uh, there's so few people that are truly successful at it. Exactly, and 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 that's what I wanted to teach her. Not as a way of discouragement, but like, you know, come up with your hero, but make it more about them. Like why. Why do people want to read about this person that, that you're coming up with? Yeah. You know, like, more about that. And that's why I said, flesh out your, your, your synopsis, your story arc for the character. Um, what's her world? What, what's, you know, like, it, I'm trying to teach her the way I, I write. And it's, it's like you. I actually, um, I told her, I said, if you have trouble thinking about it, let me know. And we'll go walk the dog at... You know, we have a really big um, trailed-off park near us where you can get off, and you're just on these trails through the woods. And I said, and I'll just bring a little recorder, and you can just bounce ideas off, which would be the equivalent of, like you, me sitting on a couch, putting on some music with a legal pad in my lap and fleshing stuff out in my head before I even start to, you know, put words to paper story-wise. I'm trying to show her that method. And a fun exercise is, uh, and I, I don't ever do this up front. I mean, people always try to break down, like, you know, what every little detail about their character in advance. A lot of times I'll try to flesh out some basics and then start telling the story, because sometimes the story will dictate who the character's going to be. Um, and uh, But after I've played with a story and an idea for a while, I will then sit down and do sort of a detailed breakdown of what this character is and one of the things, I, I, I'm a big fan of, of Dungeons and & Dragons and tabletop gaming because they teach you how to build out these characters. And if you look at even the current player's handbook for Dungeons & Dragons, I mean, it, it, it breaks down character motivations, backgrounds, it, it histories. I mean, there's some mm -hmm. detailed information here on, on characters. You know, and we do need to know, I mean, what motivates this character? I mean, it, it, does he have, uh, you know, is he just trying to prove himself to his father? Is that what his entire world is about? Because there are people like that, you know, and I always tell, you know, people are afraid to take on real people, but I, here, I do this pretty routinely. I'll pick two people I know, I'll pick a character, and I'll say, okay, this character's kind of like this person, kind of like this person, and then I'll do a mashup in my head of, okay, this character is this person and this person, sort of as a mashup. Um, and, uh, 
that always works pretty well for me, actually. And almost every one of the characters I've created are based on two people I know that I've sort of mashed together in my head. Right. Well, see, and, and that's the other thing is um, we actually we have a tabletop game that we're running right now called All Flesh Must Be Eaten. It's a zombie apocalypse game. Um, it's super fun. It's set in a, in a modern era. Um, you can make it completely um, supernatural free, or you could add in weird elements to the characters and do that. And she came up with her own. And I think she's wanting to write based off of this little girl that she's playing in in the tabletop game, but that has taught her true character development, as much as she can understand it at her age. And, and not to discredit her, because she's super smart, so she'll probably turn around and end up writing something better at 11 than I've ever written at almost 40. But, you know, that's the breaks. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she's gone into how to actually create a character and then hold true to that character in a story where you're not going to change the character to fit a narrative. You're going to see how that character would interact with events as they're unfolding around her. So I'm kind of looking forward to what she comes up with, with that. You know, I would never discourage either one of mine from ever doing anything like that. If they want to, they want to try to follow me into being creative, then I'm cool with that. But yeah, I, I like your, your method. You know, for at least for the character development part, is very similar to what I've always done without ever having tried to get anything out there for other people to read. So, I, I you know, the, fun, the the crazy thing for me, and this is where fandom is just uh, come to kind of realize that when people say weird stuff, I, I, I've kind of done a full circle now. Like when they criticize you for your work. It depends on, on what it is. Sometimes people will criticize, but they do it because they care. And I mean, and that, that's a good place to be, even though what they're saying might be inappropriate. I mean, I've actually had, uh, I've had pe- you know, I'm the only one that's ever written that David Lauren think tank character. No one has ever written that character but me. I've actually had people email me or tell me to my face that, you know, I did something with that character that that character wouldn't do. And that uh, was just, kind of fascinating to me. Um, and uh, I think it's, it, it, maybe it's a function of society these days because, uh, you know, my, my kids uh, refer to their friend's parents by their first name. And I, I couldn't imagine fucking doing that as a kid. You know, everyone was Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so. And I'd have been terrified to call my neighbor by their first name. You know what I mean? And there just seems so right. freewheeling these days. It kind of is what it is. But, uh, I, yeah, things are so different now, man. I, I'm not sure it's better. You know, people seem to say that it is, but I, I'm not convinced. Um, <laughs> that, uh, it was always, you know, I'm not waxing nostalgic. There's so much stuff I like better now, you know, healthcare, modern medicine, all, all these sort of things I'm a giant fan of. But, uh, you know, there just were certain, there just seems to be this sort of freewheeling attitude about stuff now that kind of disturbs me at times. Yeah. I actually kind of agree with where you're coming from. I, I think, you know, the only thing I get, I think, nostalgic about is, I think, the attitudes of the people back then. Like, nobody was upset at every little thing that happened. You were allowed to, like, be yourself without having to worry about pissing 18 different protected classes off and... 
You know, things just were what they were. Yeah. Um, it just seems like a hypersensitive reality now, and I just, I don't have a taste for it. Um, and, yeah, I mean, but like you said, I mean... Well, I was curious to see where this I, stuff will end up in 10 years, you know what I mean? I mean, that's really... I think it'll burn itself out. I literally think people will get so sick of all the whining on every side that I think it'll it'll end up burning itself out. Um, there's studies saying that the generation growing up now, um, that they there's a good chance they'll end up actually swinging <clears throat> much more centrist and much more right-leaning um, as an almost natural rebellious pushback to everything that's going on now, that it'll, they'll either end up being either the most centered generation this country's ever seen, or probably one of the more right-leaning generations this country's ever seen. Right. Um, which, I mean, take that good or ill, we'll see down the road when we're older and maybe we'll reach a point where we just don't give a shit anymore. Because yeah. <laughs> we're older and we're like, I've already been there and done that, I'm just going to enjoy the time I have left, I uh, don't care anymore. Yeah, my... But I, I do... Th- I do think the current climate, it's its burning a little too hard, too fast on both sides, and I think they'll end up burning themselves out. Hopefully. And then everyone can go back to the middle and be able to free exchange ideas and talk to each other again. That's all I want. I don't want one side to win or one side to lose. I just want people to remember that there's a middle ground where we used to live where you could have your opinions, but it was okay that somebody else had theirs too, and it didn't make the other side Hitler. You know, like, I don't know. Yeah, it seems to be the, you know, you're either with me or you're against me, and that that seems... Yeah, that tribalism shit is annoying. Yeah, I, I you know, part of that to me is, is social media, because, you know, you know, if you had a guy who was a loudmouth racist guy, you know, 30 years ago, uh, he didn't live usually around a bunch of people that were similar to him, so he, he was afraid to talk his shit. And now those guys can find uh, a thousand other people that feel exactly the same way they do online. So they feel mm-hmm. by the fact that they have people that, that tend to believe these sort of similar fringe views. Um, and, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very curious, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm actually uh, fascinated by the fact that artificial intelligence is, is so close to eliminating half the jobs in this country that what a – what right. the fuck are all these people going to be doing? You know, people are so obsessed with, you know, the names we're calling each other in this bullshit, but uh, 50% of the people that are currently employed won't have a job in 20 years, you know, and uh, 20 years seems like a long time until I realized, oh, I was 28 20 years ago, and I was, had been working in comics for five years, and I was getting married, and, uh, you know, so yep. 20 years does not uh, last that long, so it's... Uh, I was talking about that to someone else the other day. They were like, you know, time time moves kind of funny. I'm like, no, time moves fast, even when it doesn't feel like it's moving fast. All you need to do is get in your car, turn on the classic rock station, and cry when Stone Temple fucking pilots get played. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, when they're like, the classic rock, playing all the hits. And they go from Led Zeppelin to something from Soundgarden or Alice in Chains, and you're like, wait, no, that's not right. Well, it's all, you know, it it is kind of, you know, when you were five, six months seemed like a long time, but it was, you know, 10% or 20%, whatever the math is of your lifetime. You know, now six months is what? One quarter of 1% of your lifetime? You know, so, you know, I mean, 
I think there is a lot of rel- relative uh, ways of looking at that. Because I remember, you know, like summer vacation always went really fast. But, uh, you know, these school years with my sons, like my son is uh, 17 now and he's about to graduate from high school. And I'm kind of shocked. Uh, you know, it just seems like, oh, my God, he was just a baby, you know, and uh, he's going to be a high school graduate no. this year. So, um, it, you know, it, it is interesting. So, I, you know, I'm not a religious man. I was at one point, but I am not. Um, so, you know, for me, it's, you just got to enjoy the time you have on this planet and, uh, hopefully, you know, who knows what there is. I don't think there is much of anything, but, uh, I try to be, you know, I try to be a good person, try to help people, try to be kind. And I try to teach that I've tried to raise kids that are similar that, you know, compassionate, have some empathy. Um, but, uh, you know, I used to be a referee for soccer and, uh, when my kids were playing, and I had problems with the parents. I never really had problems with the kids. I always had problems with the fucking parents, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, see, you you kind of see where the the old the apple doesn't fall far from the tree adage comes from, you know, where people kind of are, are self replicating in a weird way. Right. And well, and then I guess what's cool about that is, you know, my dad was very much a uh, you work hard. For your family, not because the world tells you to, but you work hard. Um, you are who you are. You own what you are. Um, when you make a mistake, you own it. And, um, you know, be a good person. Treat everybody with respect until they don't deserve it. Uh, you know, like, he, he, his was all being a good person and being a rugged individual and not letting fear control anything and this and that. And maybe that's why, like we were talking about earlier, there's that rarity where if I am wrong on something, I can admit it and actually reflect on it and maybe reverse a position here or there, uh, being willing to stand in the middle and listen to both sides of an argument instead of just, you know, fortressing up on what I think I would personally agree with. So that's obviously the way, um, you know, I was raised very different than most uh, Massachusetts people, I guess. Um, you know, it's it's pretty much you're a lifelong Democrat with no questions. You're if you're from there, you're usually a lifelong Catholic with no questions, and you're usually a this with no questions, and you follow the New England status quo. And he always bucked that, um, and I think that's what kind of got bred in me. With you know the lifelong punk rock, punk rock spirit, and not the punk rock spirit of going to Hot Topic, buying some tight jeans, and wearing a Green Day shirt, but like real punk rock ideology, where you are who you are, no matter what's popular or what's unpopular. Right. And you know, so I mean, he raised us, all three of us boys. You know, I have two younger brothers to be very rugged individuals, but also to be good people while we're being a rugged individual. You know, so. You're right. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I realized a couple of years ago um, how much like my dad I am, and I can say, fortunately for me, I'm actually proud of that fact because he's a badass dude who's you know always garnered real respect from people because of the way he is. Right. So you know, some of us get fortunate breaks, you know, and some of us have to overcome some pretty shitty circumstances, but. Yeah. No, I... You know, I've tried to mimic him and my fathering. And both of my kids are fiercely independent, but they are extremely kind at the same time well, that's, to people. That's, you know, there is... Uh... Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I feel for publishers because, uh, 
you know, so much stuff, uh, you know, it's around this back around the comics, you know. I mean, I, I know from talking to every publisher that everybody wants to support diversity and do these things, but uh, sometimes it's hard to get that stuff to sell, you know. I mean, and uh, you, you got to try. I, I mean, it, it is it is a weird time. I mean, you know, people will try, like DC Comics has tried several sort of diversity initiatives, and then they've failed, and then they're blamed for not doing it correctly. And I'm like, but you know, okay, you know, it just, it's just. And I've tried some diverse stuff, and, and we've had some success with it for the most part. But uh, we push things in a different way, and since we push less stuff, we're able to push it over a longer period of time. And uh, you know, I don't have the overhead that a Marvel or DC does, so we don't have to sell X amount of units to break even. One, we right. do, but we don't have to sell an additional five thousand copies to pay for an op- a giant office space, you know. But there's a difference between real diversity, organic diversity, and pandering, and I think the two big houses fall into pandering far more than they fall into organic diversity, and it and it shows. And I know you'll always get the accolades from some people for doing that, but there's a way to actually do real diversity in a real-world application, even in a media like comic books, and then there's a way to pander. And the pandering is completely disgusting to me because I can see it for what it is, you know? There, there is a difference, you know, with diversity being so important today. There's forced pandering, and then there's organic diversity. And I prefer when I see an actual attempt at organic... Even if it... Even if the masses don't like it, and they reject it, and they don't think it's, oh, not enough, and oh, not... But if, if it's an actual attempt at what real diversity would look like and real inclusion would look like, I respect that far more than... Let's take a 60-year le- you know, legacy character and completely retcon this, 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 and this about them for a six-month story arc, and that'll keep these people quiet for a little while. And then in six months, you know, when, when the fans that have been there forever, when they scream about the change, we can always say, well, here's the old hero coming back. And, you know, and it, so like, you're, just, you're, you're falsely inflating characters when you do the pandering and then taking it away from the groups you're trying to to appease and relegating them back to either a sidekick or not being as important and I don't think it sends a very good message and that's what I see both houses doing is they'll either retcon a character and tell everybody to eat it that have you know that's loved this character since their childhood or they do these weird one-off story arcs that only last for six months, and then they reset the universe, so the change they were trying to bring gets ruled out by either a time warp or something else anyway. So it ends up not mattering, you know. Yeah, I think you said something. I, I mean, the uh, you know the interesting word you just said was appeasement. They're trying to appease this this group by doing something. I you know I don't I don't know that that ever will work. I mean I. I have not honestly followed enough of what Marvel and DC have done. I've read a lot of the controversy, especially about Marvel in terms of some of this stuff. But uh, you know, uh, you know, we did like we did a book called Son of Shaolin, you know, and it was a, it was a, it was a specifically when you're doing original stuff, it's easier to to do diverse stuff without offending anyone because uh, it was a story that was written by this guy, uh, and it was about a uh, a black kid in Harlem that got this sort of kung fu power. You know, it was sort of like a kung fu supernatural epic based in Harlem. And that was what this was right. based on. You know, and you look, like, look at Black Panther. I mean, it makes sense that there's a predominantly black cast for Black Panther because it takes place in, in that part of the world. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's not, 
Now, I have so many friends that, that uh, of every race and ethnicity and, and gender and, and uh, sexual orientation, whatever you want to call that stuff, that uh, I, I talk to them and I, and I, I get their point of view. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing is for me, I, I just look at, like, uh, I'm a white man. I think you're a white man. And, and the people that annoy me the most mm-hmm. are white men. And uh, I don't know if that's... <laughs> yep. uh, uh, you know, I, I know mostly white men, but oh my God, I mean, I mean, you know, people, comp- you, you see these white guys complaining about everyone else whining, but they're the ones that seem to me, at least from my point of view, are whining the most about everything. And, uh, you know, I, I guess see, here's the thing that I don't get. Like, if you don't like something, just don't read it. You know, who gives right. a fuck? You know, I mean, I mean, right. and, and and vote with your dollar, because guess what? Businesses and publishers will pay attention to that. You know, not everyone is, is rich and able just to ignore things for social agendas. You know, I mean, but uh, and, and this, there's a tendency now that drives me absolutely nuts where people will, uh, you know, tell people they're stupid for liking something. Like, I see this all the time. Like, there's a show that I, I tried to get into the show twice called Rick and Morty, and uh, I couldn't get into it. And then the third time I... Oh, really? And no, the third time I, I sat down after talking to a friend of mine about what he liked about the show, and I watched it again, and then I blazed through all three seasons, and I think I've watched it five times every, you know, so, and I laugh my ass off now. So I really... See, that was me. That was me. I, I, I was a latecomer to it, and then absolutely fell in love with yeah, it. Yeah, so I have to on that, but, it, you know, I... I I see people online that'll be like, you know, people are stupid to like Rick and Morty. Or, or you know, or I'll see stuff online where people will be like, you know, I, I was actually at New York Comic Con just recently where there was this uh, woman who was chatting with me about Rick and Morty. I don't remember how the conversation started. Um, and uh, this guy comes over, and I don't know this guy. And uh, to- and the girl, was just she just told me, you know, I, I don't really understand why people like it. And I was talking this conversation. And then all of a sudden, out of left field, this guy that was over-listening to the conversation just says, well, you know, you have to be really smart to like Rick and Morty. And, and the girl just kind of gave him a dagger-eyed look, and I, I'm just like, and I looked at the guy, and I said, you know, that's not cool. I said, I like Rick and Morty, you like Rick and Morty, but you basically just said she's stupid. He's like, no, I didn't. I said, yeah, 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 you did. You basically yeah, you did, had dude. Conversation. <laughs> you totally like did. The show. You just said, well, you have to be smart to like it. There's an implication in there that she's stupid. And he's like, oh, I, I didn't mean that, you know. And, and, and he was apologetic. To his credit, he was apologetic, and it was fine. But you see these sort of uh, weird – and, oh, I saw this the other day. Someone had posted up something about uh, – oh, some guy on Facebook posted up about La La Land. And it was basically saying that this is – you know, I tried to watch that movie, the Ryan Gosling, like, dancing movie, singing movie, whatever it was. My wife loved that. Yeah, we've got a DVR, and I haven't watched yeah, it yet. Yeah, it wasn't for me, okay? I, I, watched, I, I tried to watch it, I'm like, eh, I was out after about 15 minutes. I'm like, I, I don't want to watch this. And my wife watched the rest of it and talked about how great it was. And that, That'll be a, me and my wife, yes. Yeah, <laughs> Honestly. It's fine, and, I, I, you know, and that's completely fine that she likes something and I didn't, and I don't have a problem with that. But then this guy, I see this guy go online, and he's like, and this sort of thing that, you know, I, I don't know why anyone would like this movie. You have to be stupid to like this movie. And there's sort of this weird thing where people are criticizing other people for what they like at, in entertainment. And it's one thing to have a discussion, well, hey, this isn't for me, and this is why, or I like this, and this is why. But when you when you take it to that next level where you're sort of almost fanatical about it, where you're blaming people for not liking it, or you're blaming people for liking it, and you're finding fault in them for either one of those things, I... I 
That mm-hmm. is that to me is profoundly disturbing. Yeah. Well, I've noticed that in a lot of arenas now. Um, you know, uh, you know, not to bring it back to politics, but I see this trend that it seems to be equated that if you don't agree with somebody politically, that it's a lack of education on your part. Um, I see a lot of more, and it's, I hate to say it because it sounds dickish, but more of the left-leaning people, if you go through and you look at their comments on things, if somebody disagrees with them politically, it, it automatically goes to a presumed complete lack of education or, or, you know, you're too stupid to understand why you should agree with my policy. And if you don't, it's because you've never read a book or you didn't go to school or, but yeah, I'm starting to see that spill over, like you said, into entertainment where if people don't like a high concept movie, it's because they're not smart enough. And if people dislike a low concept movie, which La La Land does seem kind of like a low concept movie. It's there to entertain you. It's not going to try to teach you a whole lot of life lessons or be, you know, heady or anything. That people who find entertainment in that, it's because they're, they only like it because they're not intelligent enough to like anything else that may have more depth to it. And personal preferences are personal preferences. There's, I'm sure there's stuff I like that somebody would be like, wow, you're stupid. Right. I'm just like, no, I'm actually highly intelligent, but I just happen to like this. Now, for me, with, like, the Rick and Morty thing, anybody can enjoy that. It's a funny freaking cartoon. That shit is hilarious. Now, being into sci-fi and liking science and the stuff that Rick does, and they get into, you know, parallel universes and multiple dimensions and quantum physics and this and that and this and that... Knowing that stuff makes some of it funnier. It actually makes the show a little more interesting, I think. But that doesn't mean that somebody who just likes to laugh and like, you know, watch an irreverent cartoon can enjoy it just as much, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've learned in my age that people don't need to like the, the same things I do, and it's not a reflection on who they are as a person on the inside that has anything to do with whether we have commonality or not. Well, you know, and I used to make fun of my mother uh, back in the day. My mother is a very smart woman, you know, uh, and and she uh, would read these trashy sort of uh, romance novels. and uh, Like the Harlequin books or whatever? Not the Harlequin books, but the, like the one with the Fabio covers on it. So in, in that in that vein. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and she would read these books, and I'm like, wow, you know, you you're a teacher, you're an accountant, you're all these things, and, and you read this shit. And it was only, and then, you know, she told me, she's like, it's just, uh, you know, I'll think about it. And it, sometimes it's nice just to not think about things. And and then the weird thing happened where Sunstone came out and did so well for us. And then I started writing this swing book, which is another sort of uh, slice of life romance book. And uh, I have had a profound fucking shift in my perception of those types of titles, those slice of life and romance because, Jesus fucking Christ, dude, those things are impossibly hard to write. I mean, impossibly hard <laughs> to write. And because, you know, like when I'm working on Aphrodite 9 with Skip and Sage, and we have dragons fighting spaceships, you know, that's pretty easy to make look interesting visually, okay? You know, you got a dragon right. rock fighting with some, you know, spaceship. Pretty easy to make that look fun, right? You know, having a couple at a, at a dinner table getting into an argument and have it, you know, interesting and, and, and compelling and, and making people care about these people, god damn, that's fucking hard. And I, uh, I, I have learned 
I have learned more about writing in the last year working on these Sunstone, Swing, you know, Sugar, some of these slice of life romance titles that we've been doing. I've learned more about yeah. writing than I ever did because uh, you really have to double down and focus on the characters and make them interesting and, and, and deliver something that's compelling. Um, and that's really hard. So I, I kudos to the people that do that stuff. I was going to say, isn't it cool when you unexpectedly find stuff like that out? Where you actually still have teachable moments and they're like true teachable moments. Yeah, no, it is pretty cool to always have something like that happen. It was a it was a profound shock to my system because I'd always kind of made fun of those, you know. Me too. And and you know, I, I mean, when you realize that, wow, those are hard to write, you know, and. Uh, I think I'm a smart guy. I, I try to write stuff that's smart, you know. I mean, I think there's plenty of, like, romance stuff. Like, I see a lot of rom-coms with my wife sometimes, and they're pretty fucking stupid. But, uh, you know, they're sort yeah. of forgettable and just kind of whatever. Um, but, you know, the ones that are good, like, there's, uh, like, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Uh, I love that movie. There's another one that's, uh, like, a Christmas time one. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Love Actually? Love Actually, that's it. Well, you know it. I love that movie. I love that movie. <laughs> you know, I can watch that movie over and over again. And it, it is not the kind of movie I would have ever watched as a child. You know, and I think experience matters. You know, I've been, I've been, I was married to my ex-wife for a decade. We've had a couple kids. And I've, I've since, since she and I split up, I've been kind of raising them by myself. So, and I remarried to another woman and uh, much younger. And so it, it's, it's, it, it's really interesting when you learn so much about yourself and life and love and, and, and all these sort of things that, uh, you know, a lot of what I write is, uh, is stuff that I've experienced, very relatable. You know, I mean, I, I, I try to write stuff that I have some sort of a knowledge or I try to learn about. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, like, Guy Ritchie is, like, the king at super cool, super stylized, you know, action, violence, crazy plot twists and schemes and this and that with great soundtracks. And one of my favorite movies from him is the absolute, complete, could not be further opposite from his typical film style. And um, it's this movie called Millions. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's about these brothers. It's mostly about the youngest brother. But it's about these brothers. And, you know, um, there's a almost like a train or a bank robbery. And the, the crooks have to ditch the bag while they're running and this little kid finds it and the whole underlying thing is that his mom has recently died and I mean I don't want to give too much away because I recommend everybody watch it I'll check it out and it's like yeah he starts seeing all these saints from the bible and it's Guy Ritchie so it's not a religious it's not like a bible thumping movie right um, but he starts seeing all these saints from the Bible because I think they go to Catholic school or something. And it ends up being this beautiful movie about a ki how a kid would process grief. And it's so different from every other Guy Ritchie movie, but it's my favorite one that he's ever done. Called Millions? I'll check that out. I've not heard of that one. It's called Millions. It's it's a beautiful movie. It's, um, I mean, A Monster Calls is probably the closest thing I've seen to that of trying to accurately show how a child would deal with grief. Yeah, I've um, seen that one. I like that movie. Dude, that movie kicked me right in the heart toward the end when I realized what was really going on. Yeah. And, 
like I, I like movies like that. I will get down with anybody else on any, you know, comic book movie or super action movie or alien style movie or Blade Runner. But those movies like that, like Millions and A Monster Calls and everything, I get way more into movies that are more about character okay. development and stuff like that than anything else. Like when I watched um, 10 Cloverfield Lane, I loved that movie. Until the end, when they started showing the monster. Millions. Is this the one about seven-year-old Damien believes he received a divine gift from above? Yes. Okay, that's... Uh, oh, it's not Guy Ritchie. It's Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle. Okay, that's... Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Danny Boyle. Right. Train spotting in 28 days yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, I just, I, Okay, I just bought it. I never heard of this film. I just... Uh, that's right. It's... it's. I'm sorry I got the name wrong. I just, same, same, same kind of film. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, you got the guy who did 28 Days Later and Train Spotting, and then he does this, like, beautiful, you know, human character piece movie, and it ends up being, like, my favorite movie that he's ever put out. I thought it was Guy Ritchie. I knew it was it was either one of the two. Um, but, like, you know, I watched 10 Cloverfield Lane, and the relationship in the bunker... Um, between the John Goodman character and the other two, you know, quote-unquote survivors that are there with them, had me completely sucked in. I don't know if you've seen it, so I don't want to spoil it, but at the end, you know, it is a Cloverfield movie, so you know what's coming if you've seen Cloverfield. Right. I actually got pulled out of it at that part and was just like, oh, okay, so now it's just this until the end. I was more wrapped up in what was going on in the microcosm in the bunker than what was going on in the outside world that was being alluded to through the whole movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm kind of finding myself being more drawn into stuff like that. Like um, Brie Larson's, uh, I don't know if you've seen The Room. I have seen I like that movie quite a bit, yeah. Yeah, see, stuff like that. Um, I We were at a friend's house for a game night, and the game kind of fizzled out, so we went... And we were trying to find a movie, and I recommended that we watch Right at Your Door, and everybody ended up loving it. It's uh, Melora Walters and, is it Rory Cochran, the guy that was in Empire Records, and he was on um, one of the CSI shows for a while. Um, it's a really cool movie. Uh, terrorists let off a dirty bomb in L.A., and 90% of the movie is him in his house. Yeah, I think I saw that one. Didn't that one where he, like, taped up the door and his wife came back? And he, and yeah. I saw that movie, too. That's called Blackout, right? Or it's, No, it's called Right at Your Door. Oh, okay. I don't remember, I don't remember the title, but, yeah, that's I've, I've seen that one. That's a good one. See, I'm getting more into stuff like that now. Yeah, I think, you know, your taste changes as you get a little older. So. Yeah. I mean, I'll still, you know, I'll watch Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff and laugh, but... You know, for stuff that I actually end up connecting with, it's more stuff like that. Yeah. Like mil Millions and, you know, Cloverfield Lane and The Room was, that was heartbreaking yeah, to watch. Yeah, that one, like, uh, those those movies are always a little hard to watch. There's there's a lot of movies I've seen once that I don't really want to watch again, but I love them, you know, and that... Because of the feeling? Yeah. Well, some of those are like I've, Gone Girl, that uh, Gone Girl film. You ever seen that? Yep. Like that. Yeah, I did. That movie, uh, I don't ever want to see again. Or is it Gone Girl, the one with uh, Ben Affleck, and they think he's killed his wife? Or yeah, and she ends up being like mad, freaking crazy. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I watched that movie. and I never want to see that movie again. And I, I really like it. It was a very well done film, but I'm like, I, I never want to see this movie again. So 
Yeah. That's how I am. Uh, that's how I was with The Last of Us video game. Oh, I played uh, that for a while, but I never finished it. I, I That story is probably, in any medium, probably one of the best stories that me and my wife have ever sat through. She, uh, she watches some of the video games like they were movies. Um, I always offer if she wants to play them, and she's just like, nah. But she'll get up on the couch with me and watch certain ones like they were movies. That's like her entertainment, which is so hard for me as her husband to have to sit down and play a video game. Um, but that story was so well done that I've tried to replay it, and because the beats aren't going to be there, I actually end up turning it off and playing something else. And while it's a beautiful game and the multiplayer part is fun, the actual story was I tried to replay it, the, you know, the story again, and just I didn't have the heart to go through it again because it was so well done the first time that I was like, eh. You know, I'd rather remember the impact it had than play it over and over again to where it's just like any other video game I've played a bunch of right. times. Now, I was like that with Bioshock, too. I've, I've played Bioshock, the first one, once and infinite once, and absolutely loved them and would sit around with somebody and talk the Bioshock universe all day. But I like just playing them the one time, getting the emotional beats out of it, and then yeah, know, moving on to the next thing that I can actually invest in. Agreed. Agreed, agreed. So um, are you guys still – you've got your uh, – the Top Cow Talent Hunt's still going on, right? Yeah, I mean, we just did the uh, the first round of feedback. Uh, the Talent Hunt runs through December 15th. You can turn in your uh, submission up to December 15th. You don't have to have done the earlier deadline. Uh, this year, it's based on Postal Think Tank. And uh, so if you want to uh, do it, the rules are, are findable pretty easily online. You know, the, the, we've listed them on CBR. There's just a, a form you have to fill out, do a little bit of research, and you can submit as a writer or artist. And... Uh, you know, the winner will be guaranteed publication. That's awesome. That's awesome. So um, where can people find you if, if they wanted to, to follow you on different platforms? And Well, I'm on uh, Facebook, which is probably my most prolific uh, one I post on the most to talk to people about because I'm pretty wordy. Uh, that's just self-loathing narcissist. But if you actually just go and type Matt Hawkins, uh, you can find me pretty easily. Or if you go to the Top Cow uh, main uh, page, I'm listed as uh, one of the staff on that, and you can click through to that. But my actual Facebook is self-loathing narcissist, all one word. Um, and uh, I'm uh, at Top Cow Matt on Twitter. Uh, I think I'm mhawk5222 on Instagram. And uh, Top Cow feeds are, you know, I, I'm on all the Top Cow feeds too. So if you're at Top Cow on Twitter, Top Cow on Instagram and Tumblr and, and all those things. Um, so pretty, pretty prolific. Uh, I have a, uh, a website that I post a lot of stuff up called matttalks.com, just uh, three T's in the middle there. And, uh, you know, uh, but usually Facebook and Twitter are the ones I'm most, most on. Okay. And what details can you give on this, uh, if any, on, on this Kickstarter coming up so if people did want to – so, I mean, I can edit this and push it out today so it's ahead of when the Kickstarter launches – if you want, and that way people can be made aware of it um, if they download it and listen to the episode. Yeah, the Kickstarter, like I said, launches Thursday morning at 10 o'clock Pacific time. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. I mean, there, there will be uh, different tiers that are for special kind of stuff, but for the most part, it's just uh, it's a way to get the digital book and an exclusive cover. 
Um, it will be available through the regular channels, but it'll be much later, and it won't have the same cover on it. And there are some perks like some, uh, you know, lithos and buttons and, and some crazy sort of little merchandise stuff that you can only get through the uh, Kickstarter. But uh, there's a nice little video we recorded, so all that will be live. But this is a 128-page uh, original graphic novel uh, written by me with artwork by Raphael Ayanko. So it's a reuniting of the Symmetry team. Um, the basic nice. the basic idea is that, you know, in 2012, some Harvard geneticists discovered uh, that we can record data on DNA uh, like a computer hard drive. And so what uh, a team discovers is that what we used to think was junk DNA, they've discovered that someone recorded a bunch of information on our DNA like 10 million years ago. And we're just finally starting to uncode it now and see what it says and, and what this thing is. And so it has all these bioschematics and different things of how to build creatures. And, and uh, But um, the basic idea is it's, you're able to build a stairway sort of to heaven. And, and that's kind of the idea of it and kind of what we're playing with. So, uh, Damn. That, that's the core idea. That's badass. <laughs> So, I mean, like I said, I know I'll end up jumping on it, and um, anytime you put out anything, I'll make sure to retweet it. I'll make sure to share it on Facebook for the Kickstarter and stuff. I I, I love helping with stuff like that, and I'm never going to ask for anything in return. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I just want, you know, I just like helping out. So I will definitely jump on, and I'll make sure this gets out before Thursday so people can know of it ahead of time and jump on. Sounds too. good, and I will uh, definitely retweet stuff out, your uh, your links for this and all that. Just let me know. Uh, email me all the links, and, and I'll get that out, and I'll top out feeds and all that, too. Cool. Cool. 